A prominent black Northeast Ohio leader could soon be a prominent national black leader in the Biden administration. Something we'll be talking about on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Back to having a full house with Chris Warnowski back. Also with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon, I'm Chris Quinn, the editor. Let's begin. How did Ohio more than double its daily coronavirus case record in a single day? Jane Cahoon, that number was the biggest jaw dropper I could possibly imagine. But as we've talked about, it's not real. But we did break the record even without the weird glitch. So let's start with the glitch. Why was that number more than double the previous record? So the glitch, well, first of all, the number is 25,721 new coronavirus cases. But this was expected because, as you say, there was a glitch uh, because they were taking extra steps to verify this um, big influx they've had of of, uh, antigen tests. So they had a bunch of these positive antigen tests that they had not been including, like for the last month, in the counts because they were taking extra steps to verify them because they're not as reliable as the as the PCR tests. So they couldn't keep up with this backlog. And, you know, the CDC, I guess, said, it's okay, you don't have to do this verification. So they said, okay, we're going to just, we're going to include it as uh, in, in Tuesday's count. And, you know, it's going to be a jaw dropper, as you said. But so that's how we broke the record in, in such a, a big way. But the, the backlog was around 13,000. So if you take that away, we're still up over 12,000, which, you know, would be a record because here, here's another asterisk for you. The, 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 um, we did have a day with over 17,000 on November 27th, but that was because they didn't report any on Thanksgiving and that was the day after Thanksgiving. So it was two days worth. But they, the real, I would say, maybe highest single day record was on November 23rd with 11,886 cases. But, but even that one contained like two days of cases from the Cleveland Clinic and Mercy Health. So anyway, any way you look at it, it's a, it's a huge number of cases. I mean, I I really hope we don't break that record. We'll see as the holidays come. We're racing up. I I remember when we thought a thousand was a lot, and it seems so quaint now to think, oh, "Oh, a thousand. And, you know, and I remember as we approached Election Day, we were going to be in the newsroom. But I thought if we get close to 3,000, I'm not going to be in the newsroom because I don't want people to get it. 3,000. And now we're uh, talking. That's 11. in the rearview mirror for well, sure. I mean, I mean, that was a month ago, man. It was a month yeah. ago we were thinking 3,000 would be high. Uh, it's truly frightening. And it sounds like it's about to get worse. If we ever top that 25,000, we're in trouble. So yeah. hopefully that becomes we have, a record. We um, passed half a million total cases in Ohio since this outbreak began. And that, that was the... The first time that the worry now is death. Uh, the death numbers across yeah. the country are now back up to where they were at the height in the spring. And we thought, you know, with all the treatments and things that we're doing, that we had greatly reduced death. But it's it's rocketed back up. And yeah. the scary thing is that's likely to get a lot worse before it gets better. OK, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Is Cleveland sewage showing that predicted post-Thanksgiving coronavirus surge is happening? Chris Ranowski, you come back after two days off and I immediately send you to the toilet. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yeah, um, the Ohio Department of Health has notified the Cuyahoga County Board of Health of a sustained surge in coronavirus fragments found in the wastewater at two of the county's treatment plants 
which could illustrate a boost in COVID-19 cases throughout the region in the coming days and weeks. The increases were noted at the Westerly Wastewater Treatment Plant on the Shoreway on the west side and the Easterly Wastewater Treatment Plant on uh, Lakeshore Boulevard on the east side. Um, we spoke to the Assistant Chief of the Bureau of Environmental Health and Radiation Protection at, at the Ohio Department of Health, and she said uh, in, in the interview that um, the numbers suggest that there was increased transmission over Thanksgiving weekend, which is something we all sort of predicted was going to happen, given how many flights were booked and and and, and the indications that people were really just not bothered by by it and were going to get together and and party. She said the, the the trend was similar to what was observed in Mansfield following Labor Day weekend, and and just some background on this: people people can actually start shedding the virus within a day or two of infection, and it's traceable through through wastewater, um, and and so it's one of the earliest in in other cities and in in this region they've used this information to sort of track when they anticipate seeing spikes in the virus in people. And, and it looks like we're in the middle of, or on the verge of another one. It took a little while. I would, uh, I, I mean, we thought that right after Thanksgiving, you'd start to see the signs or by the end of last week, but, but it's clear it's there. It's a sustained, very big increase. And, and by this time next week, we could be in the throes of a, of a huge surge. The sewage uh, system is a great, a great early indicator. I'm glad that uh, Ohio jumped on that when that came up earlier this year and got a system in place. We will have a big story on how that all works by Pete Kraus this weekend. He's doing a deep dive on sewage. Not the most pleasant of responsibilities. <laughs> well, here's, here's, I have a question for you. Like what? Okay. So now we know this. What do we, I mean, what, what, what good is this information now? I guess, does this, you know, give hospitals the yeah. ability to brace for it or, yeah. you know, but I mean, it's, it's like, I guess from the average person, I think they're going to say, okay, well, I don't have it. You know, who cares? Well, I don't know I, if I, if you're the average person that, that doubted there'd be a post Thanksgiving surge and thought you'd just go about your way. Look, I think every piece of information that confirms what the experts say probably persuades one or two more people to do the right thing. And right. and if you've been sitting back wondering, is there really going to be a post-Thanksgiving surge? Is there really a reason my, my kids are home from school? This is a pain. This is, And then you read this story and see, yeah, there's a huge increase. You might think, okay, maybe my kids should be home from school. Maybe we need to take the precautions. And like you said, the hospitals, knowing this, can make sure they clear some beds and maybe turn down some of the more optional surgeries to make sure that they have room for the people that are coming their way. You're reading more and more across the country of ICUs that are filling up. We haven't hit it here, but our capacity is much reduced. So we'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What happens to Ohio State's national championship hopes after its 103-year record of playing Michigan every year has been ended by the coronavirus? For this question, we turn to the This Week in the CLE panelist who's most versed in college football, Laura Johnson. <laughs> you should have my 10-year-old on this to talk about it. I'm always like, why do I get all the football questions? But Because you're our expert. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know how to read Doug Maurice. That's what makes me the expert. He goes, 
way more about football than I do. And he says the Big Ten is going to make it right for Ohio State, which because it's likely the best football program in the conference. And he sees two possibilities. So one is that the Big Ten will adjust the schedule and let Ohio State play another conference team this week to meet the six-game standard they set to play in the title game. They could adjust the schedules of several teams, or if another Big Ten game is canceled and another opens up, they could play them. I guess Purdue paused activities on Tuesday, so Indiana might be free. Um, Doug says it doesn't matter who plays Ohio State because they're going to win, and then they'll get their six games in, and they can go to the title game. Or his other idea is that they'll do away with the six-game rule, and the Big Ten will say, okay, you don't have to play six games. The Buckeyes can still go and play for the title. Um, He has a really good point in here that if you could argue, look, they're not going to change the rules just for one team. you got to remember they canceled the season and then uncanceled the season. So they're who knows? You know, things could change at any time. You'd have to think, though, if you're in the running for the national championship, your fifth or sixth or seventh, you might get offended by the idea that, it, that you're playing a full season. The SEC has played a full season and Ohio State could get into the national championship contention by playing six games. I mean, that, that seems like. It's a little bit unfair, and I get it. It's a it's a strange year, and everybody's trying to accommodate and do the right thing. But I would feel like, you know, if I were eight and one, and Ohio State were six and zero, oh, I'd be thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't really seem fair to me. The um, the there was a sportscaster that speculated last week and got blasted for it that Michigan would use this to get out of losing to Ohio State again, that they would just say, yeah, we got coronavirus and not play. And the guy, the guy, I mean, he, he apologized. He pulled it all back. Uh, I mean, the virus is wiping out a lot of kids. It raises questions, and I bet Chris Ranowski will want to weigh in on this. Why were they playing in the first place? I mean, if you've got college football players going down for the coronavirus, is this worth it? Well, and I, you know, I, I, you look at the NFL, you look at college football and you look at what the NBA is about to do. And like, I understand the need for these things. And I think, you know, I, I think we need something to sort of keep us sane through this time, something to entertain us, something to do. But, you know, at some point you have to make a, a critical decision and say, this is not worth it. Like, and if I'm the owner of a football team, you know, I, I would hope that I would maintain that piece of me that cares enough about my employees where I would say, I don't want you to do this and get sick. But, you know, that's not, that's not how historically, you know, athletics in this country has worked. It's, it's, you know, they, they run their players that like, like dogs and they, you know, I just, I, 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 it, it's it blows my mind that we're having these conversations at this point while the virus is this bad and oh. and not and not pulling back on some of this because clearly what they've tried to do has not worked. You know, I think something like forty three players in the NBA have tested positive for the virus already, and the season hasn't even started yet. So, so you know, I, I think I think we're beyond the point where there needs to be another examination of whether it's safe to keep this stuff going. Laura. Well, I was just going to say that in the fall when they did cancel, I remember the players themselves were furious. They wanted to play. So, you know, they pushed to get to play. Um, so this, but at the time, and that was September, the cases were way down, right? So we didn't, 
we didn't know it was going to get this bad. But um, to Chris's point, I think I think he's right in that people have become even maybe more attached to sports in this time because it's something they can do. And um, like I was at my kids' hockey game on Sunday watching, and they've kept it safe so far. I hope that they can do. But I'm like tense watching this game, and I'm thinking I might need another outlet in my life <laughs> because I'm so into this ten year old's hockey game. Wow. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the likely role that Congresswoman Marsha Fudge will have in the administration of Joe Biden? Jane Kuhn, I'm actually pretty excited about this. Her first, the first role that she was rumored for was a little more difficult to understand. This one seems it's ideal and it could be transformative in a subject that we care a great deal about here at Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. What's happening with Marsha Fudge? Yeah, I think she's actually well-suited for either of these jobs, but the one she is apparently going to get is U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. She had sought the Agriculture Secretary job, you know, wanting more of an emphasis on nutrition and food stamps and and some of the causes that she has championed. But um, still, we know she is she will be a fighter for Cleveland and Akron, the area she represents and knows well, and she knows these issues that affect housing and urban development. So uh, as you said, it's it's exciting news. We we get, uh, looks like we're going to get an Ohioan in the uh, Biden cabinet. So, Well, and if you look back at the history of the HUD leadership, you, you really have not had a champion on public housing or housing vouchers or figuring out a way to make things safe. And we've invested a good bit of time examining public housing. Leila Tassi did a ton of work in it in the greater Cleveland, along with some of her colleagues. And it's squalid and it's horrible. And you can make an argument that it was designed from the beginning as a racist way of putting poor black people in a corner with no hope. It, it's just it's it, I would hate to have to live there. It's it's not treated well. And yet no administration, Democrat or Republican, has really looked to do re- giant reforms to give people safe, affordable housing. And to get somebody like Marsha Fudge, you know, former mayor of Warrensville Heights, longtime now congressman here, she gets it. She knows how important affordable and safe shelter is. Could we finally have a revolution in the way we deliver public housing services? You know, could we rip apart some of these complexes that are so awful and use that money elsewise. When this came up yesterday, I thought, wow, this could make a difference. And she gets it because she's from here and we know how bad it is. Right. And I mean, she's, she's a really hardworking congressperson. And uh, so I, I believe she has the drive to, to do this. So we'll, we'll have to just see how the whole thing plays out. Okay, so she's in one of the most gerrymandered districts that the Ohio legislature could create. They squeezed all the Democrats into four districts so that that right. you know they can own the legislature. So clearly, a Democrat would be her replacement. We don't have a very deep Democratic bench, so who who do we think it could be? I mean, is it is it Nina Turner? Is it Blaine Griffin? Jane, you had a suggestion before we got on the podcast that was really intriguing. Well, I think Amelia Sykes would be a great candidate for this. I believe she lives in that district. She's from Akron. And uh, she's a dynamic leader in the Ohio House, even though she's a leader of the minority. Um, 
she has she has made an impact and she's well respected and she's pretty fearless too. So um I just I don't know as far as, you know, whether Marsha who Marsha Fudge will get behind that that probably is a big question here. I should also mention that Governor Mike DeWine needs to call a special election for this. It's not like somebody just, you know, gets the seat. So uh, there could be a big battle with lots of candidates. And, you know, even if Marsha Fudge supports someone, you know, there, there might be a lot of candidates seeking the job. As you mentioned, maybe Nina Turner. Other names that have been mentioned are Chantel Brown, who heads the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party. Um, uh, former state rep John Barnes is in there. Uh, really? Perhaps the, uh, well, his name has been mentioned. His name was mentioned, I think, by by Brent Larkin. So I don't know a lot about um, about that. But yeah, Brent uh, Larkin, he's always looking at history. So, <laughs> so the, you mentioned Amelia Sykes, who would be. She's she is. She's a tremendous, dynamic leader, great ideas, all all the things you would want in a congressperson. But she is from Akron. Would the Cuyahoga county democratic machine that so outnumbers what's down in summit county insist that it be somebody from the cleveland area i mean let's face it the the democratic party in Cuyahoga county has a great deal of power in identifying and promoting candidates and if they don't want it to be an akron uh, resident an akron person they probably have the ability to stop that right for sure and i think um i believe that chantelle brown that uh She's uh, aligned with Fudge, and so maybe somebody, you know, maybe she might be a um, a main candidate. So the difference yeah. is, though, nobody knows who she is. I mean, she's a county councilwoman still, right? I mean, nobody knows what they even do. Mm-hmm. Whereas Amelia Sykes has got has got growing name recognition. Comes from mm-hmm. a family with longtime political bona fides. Um, but then you I, throw somebody like Nina Turner in there, even if Marsha Fudge doesn't support her. Uh, the, she she's a big name now, right. you know, with her national stage with, you know, helping Bernie Sanders campaign. And no, I, um, I, I think she's, she's a national figure. She, she could. I mean, she she has not been somebody that's been rumored to be planning to run for mayor of Cleveland. So so she seems available. I also I think I think Blaine Griffin, one of the guys who's been talking about running for mayor, seeing this opening may say, wow, I could make a difference in Congress. And he's another guy that has name recognition. And And the mayor's race next year in Cleveland is going to be very competitive. There are a lot of people getting ready to throw their names in. So it'll be it'll be interesting. It's, I, I can't wait to see what happens. If she becomes the HUD director I, two years from now to look at the track record, because this is somebody who does know what the needs are. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What move is the legislature making in the lame duck session to reduce the frightening number of car versus Amish buggy crashes Ohio sees each year? Chris Ranowski, it's always a slap in my face to realize that Ohio has the second biggest Amish population in the country because I grew up over on the East Coast and my wife is from Lancaster County in Pennsylvania where it's like nothing but Amish. But it's big. It's really big. And that means we have a lot of these accidents. And and finally, the legislature is doing something that's been done elsewhere to reduce them. Yeah, frankly, I was stunned when I read the statistic that there on average is a, there are 120 crashes involving horse-drawn vehicles in Ohio each year. I mean, that's a I mean, that's a staggering number. And um on on Tuesday, the House passed a bill that would require flashing lights on the back of Amish buggies 
uh, a meant to move to a, a movement to sort of cut down on the number of those crashes. The bill would also require animal drawn vehicles to have reflective tape on the back. And it's still waiting for DeWine's signature, but I think that's pretty much a, a given at this point. But yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a, a good move to address a problem that, you know, is, is hurting and killing a lot of people. Well, the buggies, the, the reason this is always so bad is the buggies don't have any of the safety measures that cars have. And so anytime there's an accident, it's very likely to be gruesome and horrible because the people are basically just in a big wooden box. Right. Um, where I'm from, we also have like a pretty significant Amish in Illinois, and Northeast Missouri. There's a big Amish community there and they require them in those states to have the, the orange, the bright orange triangle on the back. But I, I just, again, I don't know that, you know, with distracted driving and, and with that becoming such an increased problem, I, I, I don't know that just having something that doesn't flash and get people's attention would be uh, good enough to sort of keep people safe especially as the sun goes down. I was actually at a stop sign once in Lancaster County where the opposite happened. The horse reared up and the buggy backed up into my bumper. So yeah, I mean, I I covered a really bad one of these once as a reporter and, and it's horrible. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was on an interstate. I mean, it was on a highway highway, so it was really bad. And, and, and so you just, you don't, you, you, it's it's a good move. I'm glad the state is doing this, and 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 I think it's a it's good for both the Amish community and drivers at large. The weird thing was, ten legislators voted against it. It's like, why would you vote against this? Is it another one of these civil liberties things? Yeah, I think it's going to be people. it's going to be religious liberties. So <laughs> it's bizarre that you'd vote against that. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish keep his promise to work with watchdogs who stepped up to ensure that the social services tax we just passed would be spent as promised? Laura Johnston, I get that that social services changed with COVID, that different needs arose. But if you'll remember, when this tax was passed, there was some resistance and several people stood up. Akram Boutros was one. John Curlett was another and said, we guarantee you. We will make sure this money is spent on what they said. So did they live up to that promise? No. (laughs) (laughs) And I know your flag is already thrown on this one. But um, yeah, this $35 million generated by the health and human services tax that voters had just approved in the spring was supposed to be spent on some very specific priorities. And and now it's different. Um, so $2.3 million will be spent on health care and workers' compensation costs for county workers. They're going to put $2.6 million towards the Say Yes to Education, which provides wraparound service and scholarships for Cleveland students. Apparently, they just had forgotten to put that one in the budget. And the people that believed that they were going to hold the Buddhist administration accountable actually aren't aren't mad about this. They told reporter Courtney Astolfi that they were not briefed before the administration presented its revised plan to council, but they're not troubled because the the spending addresses legitimate needs that have arisen as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. I think you could argue, say yes to education. That, that's not a coronavirus related problem. Right. But, it, but there's two issues there. There's yeah. there is, Are they doing the right thing with the money, which you could make a very strong argument they are, Right. But the other issue was we promised, we guaranteed you would be transparent. I'm going to go back and find the editorial board meeting where they came in 
and told us, got in our face, we promise you we will stay on top of this. The GCP, Greater Cleveland Partnership, did the same thing. They weren't consulted. So so forget how they're spending the money. That That's one where I, I think everybody would agree COVID changed the world. But right. Armin Budish did not live up to his promise. And these watchdogs did not live up to their promise. So the next time Armin Budish comes looking for a tax increase and people stand up and say, we promise to be watchdogs, they'll have zero credibility. They should have expressed outrage. They should have said, damn it, Armin, you said we would be brought in, that we would be looking at this, that we would be open about it. And instead, this dropped at the last minute. We had barely any discussion about it. And none of the people that sat before us and the public and said, we guarantee you we'll be watchdogs on this, knew about it. That's It's another one of the examples, the many examples of Armin Budish having the worst transparency that I can imagine. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, we couldn't even get Catherine Turser, who's like a good government advocate, though, to get very much upset about this. She just said, you know, things change. So um, but I agree. Like, you know, people voted for this money and they said they were going to be very transparent. I got to tell you, the next time they come in and say we're going to be watchdogs on a tax increase, we're going to call BS. It's just not true. They didn't. As soon as the tax was passed, everybody climbed back into their holes. And that does not instill confidence in voters. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How likely are we to see party affiliations listed for judicial candidates on future Ohio ballots, including the Ohio Supreme Court? Jane Cahoon, there's a great debate that we often have in our own newsroom about whether or not this is appropriate or not, because right now uh, ju- judicial races are considered nonpartisan, even though they run in partisan <laughs> primaries to get on the ballot. So this is going to change, it looks like. Yeah, this is looking likely the the a bill that would end this practice of not listing the party affiliations on the general election ballot is uh, clear to House committee. And it looks like it's going to to the floor. And, um, you know, what what this really is about is is the Ohio Supreme Court races, I think, uh, largely anyway, because that's maybe one area where we've seen Democrats make some gains statewide where they've been creamed in in all the you know the statewide executive races but uh they they've won like something like three out of four of the last Ohio Supreme Court races and they now have three justices on the Supreme Court so it makes it a much closer four to three majority for Republicans and uh I think uh three three more seats are up for grabs in 2022 including Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor's seat so I think the Republicans feel that this sort of this lack of party affiliation makes it harder for them to to get their folks elected because, you know, Ohio's becoming much more red. And maybe if they saw that party tag, they they would be elected. So, um, as I said, you know, Republicans dominate the legislature. So it seems, you know, pretty likely that this could make it not only um, past the House floor, but to the Senate and on to Republican Governor Mike Mike DeWine's desk. Well, uh, of course, and, what, and he's got what, a conflict a mile long because his son's on the Supreme Court. But oh, true. The the um the Democrats debate me on this all the time because they don't think this should happen because basically they like sneaking Democrats onto the Supreme Court. But but we're the transparency people, and to, if people want to know the party affiliation of who they're voting for, then we should certainly give it to them. I mean, it seems like th- th- this is a voter service. If voters want to vote the ticket. They should be allowed to do that, and it should be obvious. But there are a whole lot of people 
especially in Cuyahoga County, that are dead set against this, including some in our own newsroom. I think there's a good counter argument that really judicial jobs should be regarded as nonpartisan. You should be ruling according to the law. And we've had this discussion, too, before that you shouldn't assume that, you know, somebody's a Democrat or a Republican and that they're going to rule a certain way. And it just contributes to that public perception that that judges are are partisan. So that's that's the the counter argument. Uh, I would just like to say that maybe, you know, the one caveat here is whether more House members are going to become sick with the coronavirus and they'll be able to pass any legislation. Right. All those guys that refuse to wear masks are dropping like flies. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's go long. I don't want to give up on this next question. Is Ohio giving up on lethal injection and changing how it will execute people on death row? Chris Ranowski, Mike DeWine has shown that he's just not going to sign off on death penalty executions. He's not had one in his term. He's basically put a moratorium on him for the next year. But this is a huge change in the death penalty scene, the news story that came up yesterday. So what is it? Wait, I didn't realize there was a death penalty scene. How do you get into that? <laughs> well, I mean, I know how you get into it, but I don't, you know, anyway. Um, yeah, it, it is actually a very monumental decision here that basically he said he's not going to have any more executions until Ohio lawmakers can think of a different way to uh, execute people outside of lethal injection. If if people recall, we've had a a very difficult time finding a a humane way to execute people in this state after uh, several of the the drug makers who who made the the drugs that were used in lethal injection basically said we're not going to make the we're not going to make these available for for this purpose anymore and. And so, you know, there, there, this is, this has been a problem, I think, across the country where you've, you've seen them try to, to come up with a new cocktail of drugs and, and people have, have suffered and languished. And this, this process is supposed to be, you know, painless that it, you know, it's, it's, it's not supposed to be cruel. It's not supposed to be, you know, you know, exploitive or, you know, I guess cruel is the word. But, but DeWine, who has, you're right, has shown a very, you know, sort of a strong, adverse approach to the the death penalty has basically said, you know, look, we're, we're done with this until we can think of a better way to do it. So, so, so let me stop you there because mm-hmm. there aren't that many ways that are do it. You had electrocution, which, which we got rid of. You have the firing squad. There was some talk of bringing that back, but the legislature didn't do it. What, what else, what else is there? I mean, I, if you don't do lethal injection, you're not going to bring back electrocution because that was proven to be cruel. There were so many people that suffered under that. And, and you're not doing the firing squad because nobody's going to be comfortable with that. Does that mean the end of executions? And I think it's interesting. DeWine did say in his interview with the AP that he's questioning the effectiveness of the, the death penalty at all. And he helped write. Ohio's capital punishment bill. Jane Cohen, what do you think about that? I, I was going to bring that up. I was going to jump in here because I, you know, I applaud the AP for getting him to say that. We've, we've asked him, I don't know how many We've different tried ways. over and, and over again. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he actually did kind of reveal that he's had some moral struggles about this. He doesn't think, uh, he doubts about uh, its, its effectiveness as a, as a deterrent. So I thought the whole thing was, was really interesting and a big, thought it was a big story. 
It's huge. I mean, I, I mean, it, it could be the end of the death penalty in Ohio. I don't know. What else are you going to do? Sick dogs on people? I mean, it's just there's not going to be an execution method, I bet, that passes muster. And you have a governor who helped write the capital punishment bill saying, I, I don't think it's an effective deterrent. You have the former Supreme Court justice who had said some of the same things about the way it's meted out. We could be seeing an end to it. It's fascinating. It's a great story. I, I, well, I and, commend the AP. It, and it's, it's, you know, I, I think the attitudes about this have changed. So, you know, you can say DeWine helped author the capital punishment, thing, but, you know, our, our feelings and notions and, and, and what we know about the death penalty has evolved over time. It's not effective. It's really expensive. You know, I mean, the amount of appeals that are required for a death penalty case, not amount of appeals that are filed. There are automatic appeals that right. take in these cases he, and he that mentioned that really, really expensive and so he talked about the length of time it takes to get it done i mean he, so, it's first time you've seen something like that from a top republican leader in Ohio. So, but it is it is there is a a deep conservative case against the death penalty which means for a financial conservative you go okay this this from numbers and nuts and bolts this is a bad idea so then you have to wonder well what is the motivation for somebody beyond you know, the, the price savings to want to keep it. And it's just straight up cruelty. So <laughs> okay, I mean, let's, there's, there's let's no leave it there, Chris. We're way over time. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Sorry, we went long. We just had too much news to talk about. I love talking news with Laura, Jane and Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>